Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. I hope you are all doing well. Second episode in just a few days because I read a piece this morning from my Discord community that Rody posted and I wanted to respond to it, okay? I, I did respond to it in Discord as well and I'll probably talk about it in today's live stream on Telegram but uh, it's a great piece by Arthur Hayes. He is the CEO of BitMEX. A very, very famous guy in the space, big Bitcoin maximalist turned kind of uh, profit maximalist. And there, there's nothing bad with that, okay? If you are, you know, you're an investor and that's what you are trying to figure out which is going to pump. And if your reason for something to believing something is going to pump is that uh, it's a scam, <laughs> is is well, that's why you're you're thinking that. Not necessarily that it's going to uh, change the world or anything like that. But regardless, uh, Arthur Hayes has been a good influence on Bitcoin, introducing the perpetual swap or the perpetual future contract at BitMEX. You know, huge, huge player in the space. Probably very, very wealthy uh, individual that pulls a lot of weight. So I thought I would read this. Uh, peace out and and go go through my my kind of uh, reaction and critiques here a little bit before we get started check out bitcoinandmarkets.com put out a free weekly newsletter every week on friday called the bitcoin fundamentals report it's usually about 10 minute read i have commentary similar to this but you know in written form uh, and i talk about price i talk about mining and i talk about you know culture and bitcoin uh, so check out the fundamentals report and if you want to support work like this, please go to BitcoinMarkets.com and sign up to become a paid member. Also join us on Telegram, follow me on Twitter, all of those things. All right, let's dive in. So this is from the BitMEX blog, and I zoomed in here for the people, for the members viewing this. Uh, they can see what I'm looking at, but um, we're just going to go right into it. I'm currently reading Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. And it inspired me to write this stream of consciousness piece about my macro thesis regarding the ETH merge. Soros is the GOAT when it comes to macro investing. Acolytes of his, such as Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller, are superstars in their own right, but they owe a lot of their success to the strategies and principles elucidated by Soros over the years. Alchemy of Finance presents a fascinating philosophical discussion about what drives markets, and if you are serious about the craft of managing your own or others' money, it is a must-read. Soros's central theory, which he dubs the theory of reflexivity, is that there is a feedback loop between market participants and market prices. The basic idea is that the market participants' perception of a given market situation will influence and shape how that situation plays out. All right, so before I continue, I'll just say here, um, I haven't read this book. I probably should, Alchemy of Finance. Uh, of course, we all know George Soros. He's very famous. He needs no introduction, but um, I haven't read this seminal work of his, and i I should, but my, my brief understanding of reflexivity is that it is applicable mainly to like long-term uh, well, ceteris paribus conditions, right? Where 
there is nothing dramatic. There's no paradigm shift happening. There's nothing major happening. If you like have a 50 year uh, market where there, there's no paradigm shift happening, no major wars and stuff like that, then yeah, you can, uh, th these things will be, they'll be these self-reinforcing cycles or, or aspects between prices and uh, investors. But in a end of cycle decade, you, you, like for example, you might have prices going up like CPI going up, but that isn't reinforced by investors, right? They, they're, they become cash strapped instead of their wages going up to match inflation and it being a reinforcing cycle. But there was a reinforcing cycle back in the 70s, right? Because it was a different part of the cycle, different part of the era. And this time, um, there, that reflexivity breaks down. All right, so my first criticism of this is that reflexivity is, does not apply equally at all parts of a large debt cycle. So bringing in Ray Dalio here into George Soros is at the end of a long debt cycle, reflexivity breaks down. All right, let's continue. The expectations of market participants influence market facts, or so-called fundamentals, in which, which in turn shape participants' expectations, and so on and so forth. Yes, um, expectations of the market participants influence market facts. Of course, that is the case, but sometimes there's a brick wall, okay? And that's what I'm saying in these, these you know, I, I would say George Soros would say, don't invest in those, those types of markets or in those periods of time because they're, they're, you can't change a fundamental fact, okay? So he says so-called fundamentals. Well, there are facts that are fundamentals and the expectations of market participants cannot influence stone-cold facts, all right? They are objective truths. So I would fire back with that, but okay. To put it even more simply, the participants, consciously or not, often play a major role in bringing about the very future they speculate on. Their biases can reinforce a rising or falling price trend because the future becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I agree with this premise that Participants are the market. Participants are the market, and they, there is a hive mind sort of aspect to this. Uh, in this recessionary, depressionary period that we're going through, there's this sickness, this depression that's in all market participants and the way that they are interacting with each other. And so that hive mind is keeping the, well, it's influenced by the amount of debt, okay? But it also, is keeping the economy from picking back up and, and, and taking off in a sustainable long-term trend change. Okay. All right, let's continue. He hasn't even gotten into ETH yet. That's a very short and incomplete explanation of the theory of reflexivity, but I'll explain it in more detail as we go on. For now, let's bring this back to crypto and how it relates to the merge, the inputs, the event. Either the merge happens or it doesn't. That is the future event we are trading. The merge itself is unaffected by the price of ETH and will succeed or fail solely based on the skills of the Ethereum core developers. I have a, I have a problem with this basic fundamental, 
he's he's uh, showing this as a binary. It either succeeds or it fails. But there's a lot of gray gray area um, on both ends. So I would say there's actually four possibilities. This is a quantum state possibility that um, you know it either doesn't happen, so it doesn't succeed. Maybe last minute they catch a bug and they push it off again, right? So it doesn't even go off. Uh, that's a possibility. A second possibility would be that it attempts to go off, but there's some bug in consensus. And in, in the process of shifting over to this, this merge, this proof of stake, that there's some sort of consensus failure. So in the process of it happening, it fails. Then there's another possibility that it works just fine. It goes through the merge and it comes out the other side and it's fine. No problems. And then there's a fourth possibility, at least a fourth possibility, that it goes through the merge, it, it comes out the other side, and there's no immediate problem. But then a, couple, a day or two or a week down the road, then there's a consensus bug. And it fails then. It could be months down the road. But see, what you're doing by introducing a bug into your thought process here is you're increasing the uncertainty. So what I think Hayes is doing in this whole piece is he's distilling it down to this binary. And then he's only talking about the uncertainty within this binary. But really, that binary is uncertain. Okay, with a bug, you add another layer of complexity. And then the complexity they talks about in this piece interacts with that new layer of complexity to make it even more complex. So th this, there's a lot of things. It's not as simple as what he's saying, um, at least just from a premise standpoint. And we'll get into more, some more of this, these premises that he has that I disagree with. So let's continue. Structural flows. The merge will do two things. It will remove the proof of work ETH emissions on each block, i.e. the ETH that was being paid to miners in exchange for the computation power they provided the main, uh, to maintain the network. At present, these emissions total approximately 13,000 ETH per day. The merge is expected to replace these 13,000 daily ETH emissions to miners with a much smaller emission of approximately 1 to 2,000 ETH per day that will instead go to network validators, i.e. folks staking ETH, who receive more ETH in exchange for helping determine which ETH transactions are valid and which are not. These emissions will occur at the same rate regardless of the price of ETH and the Ethereum network usage, network's usage. Okay. Um, there's some problems with that last sentence. These emissions will occur at the same rate regardless of the price of ETH and the Ethereum network's usage. Currently, yes. But how long at any one period in ETH's history has their issuance stayed the same? A year? The longest running issuance uh, without uh, be, have, experiencing a change is about a year or so in Ethereum, maybe two years, but it's not that old and it's experienced quite a few. So I think the assumption that this, uh, the emission will not change is a big one and, that the pr and it won't be based on the price of Ethereum. 
you know, if the price of Ethereum crashes, those validators need to get paid to run their really expensive node that has a cost to maintain that node online running all the time and even maybe uh, compensate them for any sort of liability that they're incurring by being validators because the U.S. government is cracking down, right? So there is a cost to this. And if the, if the reward drops below the cost to be a validator, they're going to have to vote themselves a pay raise. And that's the, the last time you want to do it when the price is crashing, right? So there, there's a ton of assumptions in that, that last sentence. It's doing a lot of work, as Jeff Schneider would say. Okay, number two, a certain amount of gas fees will be burnt every block, meaning the ETH used to pay those fees will be permanently m removed from circulation. This variable depends on the usage of the network. The usage of the network is a reflexive variable, which will explain, which I will explain more detail later in more detail later. So total ETH inflation equals block emission minus gas fees burned. I agree. All right. I will treat block emission as a constant under the current local conditions. Okay, there we go. He's tying in. He's saying that, you know, this is uh, staying, uh, that it will occur at the same rate regardless of price. He's saying right here that he's just going to treat it as a constant for the argument's sake. But again, that's doing a lot of work as well, right? Okay, these local conditions could be violated, but it would in uh, would be that. But it would in the very long term, i.e., on the other, on the order of hundreds of years, whatever. I, I don't believe that. It would be on the order of a year, not hundreds of years, months. Months. Okay, so they can therefore comfortably treat this variable as a constant, whatever. Gas fees burnt is dependent on the usage of the network. And this is also a local conditions variable because they can change that. The, ver the validators now are in charge of the network and they can change it. Um, Inflation equals block emission is greater than gas fees burnt, or deflation is block emissions less than gas fees burnt. So if there's more fees burnt than the emission, uh, then you get deflation, right? The, the supply of money is going down, uh, and the opposite for inflation. Those who believe ETH will become a deflationary currency must also believe that the network usage and therefore the amount of ETH burned in fees paid by users will be high enough to nullify the amount of ETH emitted every block as a reward for validators. To assess whether or not they are likely to be right, though, we must first ask, what determines how much a given crypto network like Ethereum gets used? A user has many choices when picking a Layer 1, smart contract network chain. Other Layer 1 chains, notice he said Layer 1 because Bitcoin can do this on Layer 2. Uh, so he has to clarify that that I see. I think that the liquid or rootstock or whatever they are a substitute for these other layer one smart contract network chains. But what he's saying is that it's not. Uh, layer one smart contract network chains are unique, not layer twos. Uh, but I, I would I would consider them. Uh, a substitute okay because you know these other chains and and the tokens on these altcoins 
like ETH and Solana and Cardano and Near, whatever. I've never even heard of Near, but the, these their tokens are substitutes for Layer Two Bitcoin, like Liquid BTC. They are not a substitute for Bitcoin. All right, so here we go. Users have uh, they can pick Layer One. Um, Solana, Cardano, Near, etc. The following are the factors that I believe influence a user to choose one chain over the other. All right. Number one, Mindshare. Which chain is more widely known? Social media and blog posts are the primary mediums through which information is disseminated about various layer one chains. Now, well, let, let, me, let me just finish number two, sorry, and then I'll, I'll go back and say something about that. Applications. Which network has the most robust set of decentralized applications? Which of these applications are category leaders? Which of these applications have the most liquidity for trading, etc.? All right, so for the mindshare portion, I disagree with this. So he says, which chain is more widely known? That doesn't matter, okay? What matters for altcoins is which chain is more likely to pump, period. And if you're talking about Ethereum at 1,000 going to 2,000, or you're talking about some other token with less technical debt and less um, you know, history of hard forks and centralization, uh, like explicit centralization, that, and, and those coins are at 25 cents, they could go to $100 easily. And so the mind share is not about um, which chain is more widely known. It's which chain has more upside. Which, what is the expected upside in percentage terms? Because all of these, most of these decentralized applications that he talks about in the second set, in the second part, um, are, they're, they're not decentralized, they're, they're centralized. They could be done better. If the developers really cared about the experience of their application, for their users, they actually cared about the users and about their application. They wouldn't make it decentralized or even the pretense to decentralization. They would make it centralized or on layer two Bitcoin with not printing their own token. The only reason why it's not on layer two Bitcoin is because they wanna print their own token in a centralized way, <laughs> obscured centralization. So going through his two things, and these, he says these are the factors that he believes influence a user to choose one chain over another. He says, mind share, and I say, no, percentage of pump. That's all that matters. And then number two, he says, applications. And I say, the applications don't matter. Applications are money printing scams. And they'll do it on anything. They're centralized. They could, they could shift, okay? If there's a problem with Ethereum, they could shift to Solana or Cardano. I mean, 
um, there is, I mean, I might put one thing down here that he didn't, and that would be Lindy, the Lindy effect. So the longer, you know, the Lindy effect is the longer something has been in existence, the longer you can expect it to remain in existence. So like the Bible has been in existence for 2000 years, you can expect it to be in existence for 2000 more years. Ethereum has been in existence for eight years or what is it? Six years. And you can expect it to be in existence for six years and something that's been in only existence for one year, like Solana, I guess, I don't know how old it is. Then you, you know, it has a shorter projected lifespan. So Lindy would be legit here, but Mindshare is not because even though he, on, on this very next thing, he shows a chart of uh, Google search index to price. Like that is a, a very narrow thing here. Why doesn't he put in Bitcoin and compare Bitcoin to the price of Ethereum? Search results for Bitcoin instead of search results for Ethereum. It would show the exact same thing. He could put in a search result for crypto and it would show the exact same thing. It has nothing to do with search results for Ethereum or Mindshare. It has to do with pump potential. And applications don't really matter at all. They're just like the only reason why they matter. And let me tell you this. The only reason why they matter is because they're printing money. And what do you do with freshly printed money? Think of the... Um, Cantillion effect. We talk about this in Bitcoin all the time because the Cantillion effect says if you are um, in, in an inflation in inflation where you're printing money, the people the people that get access to that money first benefit the most, right? Well, think about the Cantillion effect, but in the respect of altcoins printing money. So those people are going to get their money first. They're going to get the freshly printed tokens and they're going to flip them and maybe buy Ethereum because that's one um, degree of separation away from the printing that's going on on top of Ethereum. Remember, Ethereum is a Ponzi with Ponzi's on top of it. So the Ponzi's on top of it will just filter down their value that they printed to buy the underlying token of ETH, Ether. So that is the pump potential and that is the importance of decentralized apps quote unquote dApps on top of ethereum or on top of any chain because that is where the money printing exists so now you can probably get where i'm going with this a little bit is his definition of inflation and deflation and how ethereum will will benefit or not benefit from that Okay, let's continue with this. Mindshare and the price of ETH have a reflexive relationship. The above chart shows the Google search trends for Ethereum and the price of ETH. As you can see, they are very closely correlated. If I run a correlation between these two data series, the R equals 0.77. Conceptually, this makes sense. Interest in the Ethereum network rises and falls with the price of its native token. And 
as the price rises, more people hear about Ethereum and want to buy in and use the network, driving up the price further. So this is number go up. That's exactly what Bitcoiners have been saying for a long time. And I say all the time that Bitcoin is a veblen good. As price goes up, demand goes up. It's a very unique situation in this world. But I don't think the same is true with altcoins. And so he says, uh, conceptually, this makes sense. Only because it makes sense for Bitcoin. But in the case of Ethereum, like he just said, he just said two paragraphs above that there are many choices when picking a layer one smart contract network chain. So conceptually, it doesn't make sense because why wouldn't they go to somewhere else with the greater pump potential? Ethereum has had their pump. That pump potential is now lessened, say, and now the, the competitors, the true substitutes will be pumped. Okay, so conceptually, this only makes sense on very narrow thinking about this. But when you look and think about substitutes, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities here. So, okay, let's keep going. Applications. The quality of the applications on a network starts with the quality and quantity of its engineers. Okay, as a developer, you create things for people to use. If there is no one using the network, you aren't likely to develop on it. Obviously, a developer would like to code in a language they know well, but that preference is secondary to the number of users one can interact with on a given decentralized network. I mean, yes, there are network effects. And if there is an ICO boom happening on Ethereum, you're going to, and you want to launch some token, uh, you're going to do it on Ethereum. But the quality of the application, I don't really, I don't really think it has anything to do with, with price. I actually would say the quality, the average quality of an application decreases as more attention and price accrue to a single network. So as Ethereum is pumping, it attracts the the marginal developer that it's attracting attracting is less quality as quantity goes up the average quality goes down and that's why bitcoin has fewer engineers and fewer developers but the quality is extremely high the best cryptographers in the world discuss and work on bitcoin so as the quantity goes up, the quality, average quality must come down. So this is not true. The number of developers is directly related to the number of users their creations can service. Okay, and as we established above, the number of users of a given network is directly related to the price of its native token. And since the number of users and the price share uh, a reflexive relationship, when, then the number of developers and the price must also share a reflexive relationship. As the price goes up, more people hear about Bitcoin, more people use the network, and more developers are drawn to develop applications on the network to attract its large and growing user base. The better the applications, the more users join the network. Mm, I don't, that's, that's not right. Round and round we go, reflexivity 101. 
So that kind of points out the, the flaw just in that last sentence here. He said, the better the applications. And all along he was talking about as price goes up, uh, as number of users go up, as number of developers go up. And then at the end, the whole time, he doesn't say anything about that this is, th these are getting better, or these are logical, or that these are sustainable, or that these are uh, um, legitimate. Until the very end, he says, the better the applications, the more users join the network. That's not true. That's not true. It's the better the marketing, maybe. The better the pump potential. And with these substitutes, as Ethereum pumps, it makes people want to take a, a, you know, a rider on another network, a competitor, a substitute. So it, it would even be the better, maybe like the more price pump in Ethereum, the more these other tokens get built up. And that is actually how these Ethereum got bootstrapped in the first place off of Bitcoin's pump. So I don't, it's not the better the applications. It's the more it pumps. Number go up, but there are built-in um, breaks on an Ethereum pump that aren't there on a Bitcoin pump. So anyway, but that's might be a little bit outside of this scope here. The outputs, let's continue though. The magnitude of the deflation of Ethereum is dependent on the amount of gas fees burnt. The amount of gas fees burnt is dependent on the amount the network is used. The network usage is dependent on the number of users and quality of applications. The amount of users and quality of applications have a reflexive relationship with the price of ETH. So you know where I disagree with that. Um, Therefore, by the transitive property, the magnitude of deflation and the price of ETH have a reflexive relationship. Man. So, the way I view ETH is that it has lived off of the pump. Okay? It's lived off money printing. ETH printed its own money to begin. Then it had ICOs on top of that. And they printed their own money. And, and some of that money got, you know, funneled down to Ethereum. And then you had DeFi. And then you have, um, you know, NFTs and all of these other, other crazy things. These quote-unquote crypto assets, which is the dumbest term. But um, these... These things, these Ponzi's on top of Ethereum, they, they have pumped Ethereum. And Ethereum has been dependent on this money printing, even the, the second order money printing from the, the projects on top of Ethereum. So when they had EIP-1559, which is that instituted a, the burning of fees, I said this is going to harm Ethereum actually because it's going to decrease their uh their inflation and they need inflation to grow it's very similar to the regular monetary system in the regular global economy okay the as the global economy is growing more money is created if the economy tries to grow a little bit but there's no ability to create more money 
this is the thing that elasticity that Jeff Schneider talks about, then the economy won't grow. And it's going to be the same with Ethereum. It's going to try to grow, but they're, they're not going to have enough inflation to continue the pump. And the only thing that will solve this is, yes, if their, their main price goes up, but that is going to disincentivize the usage of the network. So you have a catch-22. You have to have massive deflation or massive price increases. But that to have that, you need massive usage of the network. And massive usage of the network or massive price increases actually disincentivize usage. So you have a catch-22. So I would say the result is not necessarily that there's going to be zero growth, but that there, it's going to be very limited. And most likely, that's going to end up leading to validators printing more. But um, whatever. Let's keep going. The merge happens. If the merge is successful, there is a positive reflexive relationship between price and the amount of currency deflation. I think that has not been established. Therefore, traders will buy ETH today, knowing that the higher the price goes, the more the network will be used and the more deflation will become driving the uh it will become and drive driving the price higher, causing the network to be used more, and so on and so forth. He has not established that because def the higher the price increases, the less it will actually be used, not the more. Okay, the next thing he has is the market's opinion, and he, uh, this is what he says. We ne now need to determine what we think the market believes regarding whether the merge will succeed or fail. And I said that this is too narrow of a decision you know there, there's a lot of uncertainty between these two things 100 percent success or 100 percent failure there's a lot of gray area in between there it could look initially like a success and then fail it could initially look like a failure they push it down the road and then it's successful six months later or three months later and then after that success successful merge three months later then it fails three months later so there's a lot of uncertainty around success and failure so then he looks at the price okay the uh the price and he also looks at futures and which i think is interesting i didn't know the futures were this back uh in this much backwardation but um he's look now he's looking at these prices from a binary instead of more of a holistic understanding of the whole uncertainty around the merge so i think his conclusions here are just narrow it's not looking at the entire picture of this so down here when he's talking about the amount of futures open interest which is going up and the curve is getting more and more backwardation saying that the people in the future or the the this futures market is expecting the price to decrease over the next six months not increase but he's saying, okay, well, open interest is going up, the backwardation is getting worse, but the spot price is also going up. So that he thinks that that means that the people are buying spot despite the hedging going on uh, by larger players, which he interprets as the spot price is actually understating the bullishness of 
the retail trader, which could be very true and very dangerous to think that that's, that's a, a good signal to follow. But down here he has, uh, there are two possible reasons for the current sell pressure. You are long physical ETH, but are unsure about whether the merge will be successful or when it will happen. Okay, so he says when it will happen. Now this is uh, not binary. So you fully or partially hedge your ETH exposure by selling futures contracts at prices higher than the current spot price. Number two, you expect the merge to occur and want to be able to pick up the free chain split tokens that will be minted and distributed to all ETH holders when some fraction or faction of the ETH faithful inevitably resists the merge and creates a fork to maintain an ETH proof of work chain. So you are long physical ETH, but you also want to hedge out your ETH exposure by selling futures contracts. If you sell the futures contract at a discount, that, uh, that is less than the value of the chain split tokens received, you make a profit. So where was the hold? <laughs> I searched for hold and it was in here. ETH holders, okay, what's the next one? Okay, there was, there was another he talked about in here, more about holders. And my thing is, what I wanna say about the, the holders is, he, what he's saying is that the price incentivizes holding, Pricing go, price going up incentivizes holding, but it also incentivizes network usage. And so I think there's a disconnect there, at least a contradiction uh, to a degree that while yes, there can be more holding and more network activity, I think that's very unlikely to occur simultaneously. Um, and ETH is not about holding, in my opinion. It's about money printing and gambling and doubling down and tripling down. So there, there needs to be more thought put into that contradiction um, because I think that reading this blatantly points, points to that. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm not going to read all of this. I read about half of it. There's more on the trading aspect and how you can trade it. But what I wanted to get, get through to you guys mostly was that the the premise the premises of this whole thing i th i believe are are too narrow so it's not a binary between success and failure first off second of off second off eth thrives on inflation and second order money printing okay that's how that's what ethereum is about that's their value proposition and by decreasing the amount of inflation in ethereum you actually hamper its main value proposition okay it, its value proposition is not quality apps quality apps are centralized <laughs> you know like if these people really cared about the quality of their app they would centralize it and there's a lot of things in here that he just takes for granted that are not true um again i'll just reiterate these things so the main two things the factors that he believe influence people to choose one chain over another is mindshare and applications applications are mainly a way at least applications on on top of these quote-unquote decentralized layer ones are not quality they're there to seriously they're there to print tokens 
So the applications don't really matter. Mindshare doesn't really matter because search volume for Ethereum and the price of Ethereum, and it has a very high correlation. Um, you, it would be the same for the search term Bitcoin or crypto. So I don't, it's not mindshare of Ethereum only. Okay. It's mindshare of this space. And then if Ethereum pumps from uh, $1,000 to $2,000, people are going to look at those $1 coins. This is the same problem that Bitcoin has had with altcoins. So there's a thing called unit bias. And people look at that high price and they're like, oh, that's a high price. But look at this is a substitute and it's less. So I'm going to buy the substitute that's less because there's a possibility that can go up. So that is where a lot of the price comes from. It's mainly driven off speculation. Most of this, uh, all these altcoins and DeFi and all this stuff. I mean, just look at everybody told us that there was so much potential in DeFi and this lending that you could yield farm. Yield farming, guys. And what happened to that? It didn't exist in the first place. It was a frickin' Ponzi scheme. So all of this doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things for Ethereum. What matters for Ethereum is money printing. That's it. And if you take money printing away and you introduce the uncertainty of a bug in the future, consensus failure... You know, it overly complicated thing. Like this guy, uh, Check Matey on Twitter, he did this video and he said, oh, there is um, proof of work is a couple hundred lines of code. But proof of stake is a couple hundred thousand lines of code. And there's going to be problems. Plus, on top of that, it's already captured by 11 regulated companies own a controlling share of the stake and it's getting bigger. So bye-bye DeFi, bye-bye all this other stuff. Um, th there's just a lot of uncertainty around here, and it's not as easy as looking at the price and trying to fit it in with reflexivity. So anyway, I appreciate the write-up by Arthur Hayes. You know, he's not like betting his reputation on this one article. Like he said at the beginning, it was a stream of consciousness, but uh, pointed it out. One of the guys in my uh, community pointed it out to me. So I thought I would just talk quickly about my reaction to it. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Check out my telegram group t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Find me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner and become a member and support this kind of content. It's contrarian content, rebel Bitcoiner Ansel Lindner. Go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and become a paid member. All right, guys, we will see you next time. Bye.